This is an AMI podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Hey, this is our first episode for spring 2022. Welcome back, spring. Mike May is back with us with a second conversation. This one's all about his life's journey to sight restoration or what he, you know, little sight he got back through all these interventions, what it's meant for his life and how he's coped with it. Mike is also the inventor of Sendero Group and he's now part of the business adventure Good Maps. He's a real entrepreneur when it comes to technology for blind people. So that's going to be our focus on tips and tech. But before we get on to that, we're going to hear from Miss Lily. She's going to talk to us about birds coming back to Canada to migrate, to breed up here in Canada after a long winter away in the south. Lucky birds. I think this is our last time on the ice. Lewis, come on, let's go find Miss Lily. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, spring is back and so are the birds. Yeah, no, I can't wait for the snow to melt. Oh, but you know what that means? The snowmobile gets put away. No, yeah, that's why we're getting an ATV. We are? Yeah, you told <laughs> mom, right? I did. And mom told me and then the, I told Theo and now Theo's really looking forward to it. I, maybe your mother and I talked about this, but you just overheard with your big bad ears. They're tiny, but they're mighty. Yeah, they hear everything. Lily, I've noticed more birds calling out. Yeah, have you? It's our walk yesterday, right? Yep. We heard all the spring birds are back. Yep, yeah. They're coming. Oh, yeah, they are. Well, did you know that birds often migrate through cities and it does not always go well for them? So why are they attracted to cities? Okay, according to the Group Birds Canada, an estimate 50 million pass by Toronto alone each spring and fall. The main reason is that birds travel along a series of migration paths or flyways. They navigate along lakes, rivers, and coastlines with lots of resources such as food. Some of the same features that made these areas attractive for human settlements and led them to become some of Canada's biggest cities. Well, it's nice that people get to, uh, you know, enjoy the birds like we do, you know, city livers, uh, like the four million people. In Toronto, they get the uh, benefit from 50 million birds. Yeah. I mean, another reason many birds fly through cities is that they migrate at night. So they navigate by the stars, which is why they're attracted to the city lights. So does it impact birds? Mm. According to Flap Canada, which aims to protect birds from collisions with human-built structures, 25 million birds fatally collide with windows in Canada each year. It's the second leading human-related cause of death for birds. After cats. <laughs> After cats. Yep. Domestic cats. Wow. Hey, so what can we do other than keeping our cats indoors? What can we do to make the situation better for birds? Well, cities such as Toronto, Vancouver, and Calgary have adopted bird-friendly urban design guidelines so developers can help reduce hazards such as window reflections and light pollution. So what can we do right here in Ottawa, Lily, in our own home city to, to make things better for birds? Well, first we need to know more about the birds that show up here. Knowing which birds come each year and what they need can help to figure out what we can do to support them. Mm -hmm. Birds Canada offers online courses and identification apps are also available that can identify birds by listening to their calls. I have one of those apps. That's cool. 
Uh, setting up a feeder and figuring out what birds show up in your neighborhood is another way to learn about more of the birds in the cities. Yeah, well, we got three feeders ourselves, but keeping the squirrels out of those things is always a challenge. And then uh, who benefits from the squirrels getting into the uh, bird feeders? The dogs. The dogs, because they, they lick up all the bird seed on the ground. That doesn't go well for Lewis. Oh, boy. Yeah. I got a few more tips on things we can do to keep birds safe. Oh, yeah? So, make your windows birds safe. If you live in a high-rise, draw the blinds or turn off or reduce lighting at night during migration. During the day, use blinds, string hangings from the top of windows, or window treatments such as dots to prevent bird collisions. Flap Canada is currently running a contest with prizes for people who do this. Uh, You can rewild your yard. Reduce the size of your lawn and let part of the wild yard grow wild. Oh, yeah. Plant native plants. Create a brush pile to attract insects, which many birds eat, and avoid pesticides. I wonder what the neighbors would think about a brush pile on our front lawn. (laughs) Well, we could rewild it. And we do have plans for rewilding our front lawn this spring. We got a whole plan that's good. Looking forward to doing that. We have a whole backyard, too, around our pool. Yeah, we got lots of trees trees I planted that have grown up, and they're full of birds' nests every spring. Yeah. You can keep cats indoors. This is also, it protects felines from hazards such as predators and vehicles. Uh, And the last tip, scientists and conservation groups need to know the status of birds, how they're doing, in order to take the right measurements to protect them. We can all help out by serving as citizen scientists by reporting bird sightings. Organizations like Birds Canada rely heavily on citizen science data from apps such as eBird and programs such as Feeder Watch. Very cool. Yep. You know, I get a lot of pleasure from listening to the birds chirping around here and all the calls. I find it very relaxing. It's nice to know we can give back to the birds in, in certain ways and make their lives a little better. Thanks for letting us know these tips, Lily. I like the crows. They The murder of crows. <laughs> the murder. That's a flock and crow language. Yeah. Thanks, Lily. Time for the bucket list. We've got Mike May with us for round two of our conversation, and we're going to get into your book, Crashing Through, and then talk about Sendero, the company you started, and um, where all that technology is going and and your work now. But um, you want to talk about the book, Crashing Through? Yeah, sure. Are we going to go the the whole 15 rounds, or do you think you'll be knocked out before that? (laughs) (laughs) Do it, buddy. The book name, Crashing Through, came up when... There was a lot of media about me in the early 2000s, having had a new vision experience going from totally blind to low vision through a set of operations, a stem cell transplant or a cornea transplant. And through that media, I was contacted by an author, best-selling author, Robert Curson, and that um, turned into a book that he researched and wrote and published and came out as a a bestseller in 2007. It was in the top 50 books on Amazon that year up against President Clinton's book and a bunch. So I met you, I think it was 2006. So not long after you had that surgery. And I think you had a, they did a different surgery on each eye and one took and one didn't. So now you went from being completely blind. I think you were age two when that happened. And then uh, now you could see with one eye, not perfectly, but 
talk to us about what that was like, because I think there's so many new technologies being marketed to blind people saying, hey, you'll be able to see, get this implant. But you never hear about it from the blind person's perspective. Right. Well, the first question when the opportunity comes up is, do I want to do this or not? And there aren't a lot of situations where somebody's been blind most of their life and then they get an opportunity for some vision. And I put together a pro and con list and pretty much decided I wasn't going to do it. I was just starting my company, Sendero Group, in 2000, and a lot of resources tied up in making that happen. And I have a young family and didn't figure out how this was going to fit in. Ultimately, the thing that tipped the scale was my curiosity. Well, what would it be like? And in researching the cases that happened before when people had vision restoration, the expectation that you're going to see perfectly, uh, it's not accurate. It doesn't happen very often, uh, particularly if you've been blind all your life. So I set the expectation low and I said, well, I'm curious to see what happens, but if it doesn't happen, I'm fine being blind. Hmm. And with that expectation, I got some vision and then really was able to enjoy it as, a, as an experiment. It was like a new technology. I was beta testing vision to see what it was like and giving people feedback and working with the vision scientists and, and not knowing, will it go away tomorrow? Will it go away next year? Uh, you know, what's going to happen from all of this? So it ended up being this amazing journey that uh, I'm still on. It was a very practical approach you took to the, to the journey too. Like you said, this is something like you, you viewed it as te new technology, not as a new life. I've been legally blind since I was eight, but functionally blind in my mid twenties, now totally blind. And my family asked me, dad, if you get the surgery, would you get your sight back? And I'd say, well, you know what? This is who I am now. Do I want to change who I am and become someone else? Like that's a huge change. Well, and it, it really is a significant psychological thing. If, if a family member says, picture somebody that's young and, and their parents say, oh, you really should get some vision. You know, life would be easier for you. And what they don't intend is that they're saying you're not okay as you are. And the parents would, would hate to realize this is the message they're giving to their family member, to their loved one. Yeah. But it, it, it's unavoidable. That's what's happening if you really push somebody into a new vision experience. And my friends and family, they all were happy to go along with for the journey if I wanted to. But nobody was bugging me to go into it to fix something. A lot of times people think, well, if you get vision, it'll fix everything. Your, your job situation, your relationships. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. If anything, it makes those those other situations more complicated. You told me back then when we met, we got to know each other, that you considered yourself a sighted blind person. Explain that. Yeah, well, some of this came out of when I had a lot of media attention. I'd run into people in the airport. And they'd say, oh, my gosh. And, you know, they, they'd talk to me about it. And then people would say, um, oh, how much can you see? And, you know, I'd want a kid with him and say, well, I'll read the book. But in fact, I found it easier just to say, I, I don't see anything. And then that's that. I mean, I have a dog. I have a cane. Um, in a lot of situations, I don't see anything. If, if there's a, a step and it's the same color as the carpet, then I can't tell. I can't see it. 
Other times, if there's good contrast and there's color and there's good lighting, I can't see it. And that's just too complicated to explain to people. So I'm, I'm happy to say I'm blind. And um, if it goes further than that, I can say, oh, yeah, you know, I have some low vision and it works in some situations. For example, if something's moving, I can detect it a lot better than if it's stationary. I can see colors really well, but I don't see detail. I have no depth perception, no, no face recognition. And those are three key components of seeing. Of staying alive. Like you're crossing a road and people think you can see. Because, you know, if, if yeah. you... Yeah. You, you don't know how fast that vehicle is coming towards you. You don't know how deep that next step is if it's four feet down or four inches down. Mm-hmm. In, in skiing, uh, Lawrence, it was interesting because my first couple of years with some vision, I was worse off skiing than totally blind. Wow. And the reason for that was because there's four things that I could see on a slope that were uh, three out of the four were bad. So I'm, I'm going down the slope at a pretty good clip. So my vision doesn't work as well at, at higher speeds. And I see a dark thing. Is it a tree? Is it a person? Is it a hole? Not good. Mm. So I want to avoid it. Or is it a shadow from a chairlift going over? Oh, yeah, no problem. I can ski right through it. Yeah. And just having the, all that ambiguity was intimidating, made me tense up. And I didn't enjoy skiing as much until I just realized, hey, just Go back to being blind when you ski and when you're on the chairlift, you want to look around and see that there's some trees there, or some colorful clothing, then that's good. Do your sightseeing on the chairlift. I, I got myself into a lot of trouble when I went, became functionally blind because I was still trying to see. And then I, I was falling into holes and things like that. And then I realized, man, like my remaining vision, it just has to become what I call my aesthetic vision is just to watch the sun go down and the color in the sky or campfire and not depend on it anymore for anything practical. Practically speaking, I'm blind. I do everything as a blind man, but you know, but I could still enjoy a sunset. So, and it took the pressure off me to just become functionally blind and and learn how to live as a blind man. And, and, and I was a lot safer then for sure. Yeah, I've certainly learned the frustrations of being low vision. And I think there would be even more frustrations if I didn't have something that identified me as blind. I have Mm -hmm. a dog, so people assume that I'm totally blind. And that's good. Just leave Mm -hmm. it at that. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes people people are overly solicitous and, okay, fine, you just deal with it. But for a person who's not identified as blind, but they really are low vision, and they bump into stuff or it looks like they're frowning. And in fact, they're just um, squinting, you know, all of those things as a low vision person, I realize make it really frustrating for them more so than for a totally blind person. Oh yeah. You get, you get thrown out of bars because people think you're drunk. Outdoor tips and tech. Mike, you founded Sendero Group, and um, you were pushing the envelope on GPS navigation for blind people for years, and you saw that through to fruition, and now you've taken the next step in this journey. Walk us through how this has evolved here. People will only tell you so much information. I mean, yeah. bless their souls, but sighted people don't want to necessarily be a full-time narrator. So when GPS first came into the mix in the mid-90s, I thought, oh, my gosh, 
here it is. Here's a way to have location information, to know what's around me, not to replace sighted information, verbal information, but to be in addition to it, to be something that I can use as an alternative, something in my toolbox. Whenever I would stop on a corner in, in a busy city and somebody come along and I'd ask them for directions, they're always trying to be helpful when it would really be best if they said, oh, I don't know. Uh, but sure enough, they give you directions and it's not always correct. You don't want to walk five blocks the wrong way to find out, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. So I hmm. adopted a rule of ask five people for directions and then average the answers. Mm-hmm. You know, it was nice to go beyond that and say, okay, I have another tool. I'll ask my GPS. Now the GPS can run out of battery. It can have incorrect names. Crowdsourcing isn't always 100% accurate. There's, there's downsides to it. But by and large, 80% of the time, it was this wonderful independence tool. And that really set me on the journey to make this uh, a strong tool for people who are blind who didn't have the benefit of print signs and landmarks to navigate with, we needed something that wasn't just a casual convenience having GPS, but was actually a necessity that changed our lives and gave us a lot more independence. You extended this beyond just maps too, right? I mean, GPS to follow a map, to follow the sidewalks, to follow the roads, you know, and, and your, your GPS is communicating with, with a map downloaded and, and just speaking where you are on the map. That's one thing. But you went beyond that. You, you got into blind sailing, got into getting off the map and really pushed the envelope on that front as well. When you really start thinking through, now that I have a position anywhere on Earth, what can I do? And you're right. We tried it on boats. Uh, probably the most unique place I ever tried it was on a thing called uh, the Sky Screamer in Auckland, New Zealand. And it's a reverse bungee. So you sit in this Ferris wheel type chair, you get strapped in, and then they launch you at 200 kilometers an hour into the air. You go up, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred meters, and then you come down, you bounce down on a bungee kind of thing, you bounce back up. So I took my Braille Note GPS. <laughs> And I fired it up because I wanted to see, does it really go 200K? Yeah. And sure enough, it did. Wow. And I was able to record it on my own device. Elevation as well? Elevation is not as accurate as speed and as, as, as horizontal information. But yeah, yeah, we used that there. And I've used it in, uh, in places where there weren't many maps, in the jungles of, of Costa Rica, going up the Pachero River and, uh, and marking places. That's one of the other really fun things is when I can mark a place and then have another person locate that later on. And there was a, a blind community where we recorded about 15,000 points of interest around the world with your initials attached to it. So uh, I got to this one place in, in that Costa Rica river and sure enough, another blind guy had been there before me, this guy, Rich Irwin. And he said, crocodile sighting. I said, oh, great. I'm not getting in the water here. But that's so cool. This is like an ultimate treasure hunt. Worldwide treasure hunt. Yeah, the treasure is the scenery and, and, and the amazing things that you're now a part of. Now you've taken this to the next level. You're applying all your knowledge, all this philosophy and linear thinking, problem-solving skills to indoor. Yeah, indoor navigation has been the elusive challenge for many years. 
I was on an indoor navigation grant in 1995 hmm. and others since. And all sorts of things were tried for indoor navigation. Dead reckoning, which means putting a device on your belt that it's like a sophisticated pedometer. Mm -hmm. And if you know where you start, then you can know where you're going relative to that starting point. And then there was uh, talking lights, which were based on fluorescent lights as beacons. And it wasn't until 2015 or so that Apple came out with iBeacons, Bluetooth beacons, that it really started to become commercially viable. And a whole industry came out around that with um, beacons and people are still using them. And you can get so 10, 20 meter accuracy with that kind of navigation, which is better than none. Mm -hmm. But indoor, you really would prefer to have accuracy that's a couple of meters. And also you still have infrastructure that needs to be installed. And that's, that's costly to install and to maintain. Yeah, it's not just wearing a device and you're running solo. The, 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 this depending on other transmitters around you, right? That's it. Yeah, and um, so and we did that at Sendero Group and uh, had some moderate success. And at the American Printing House for the Blind, they did it with Nearby Explorer, and uh, had enough success that they thought, well, hey, there's something commercially viable here. And they spun off a company called Good Maps. Uh, a for-profit company because they really felt that this would be something that all, all people could benefit from, not just blind people. Mm -hmm. So I joined that company and about a year into it, we discovered a LIDAR camera-based positioning that had a lot of benefits over beacons. Number one is there's no infrastructure to, to install. You still have to go into the building with a LIDAR backpack and walk around it and scan it. But then you're not having to update it unless somebody takes down a wall or moves a wall. And even that you can do somewhat remotely. So that's what we've been working on for the last year and now have about 65, 75 buildings that are scanned and working. And we've got a bunch of railway stations in the UK and a number of big corporations have adopted. Uh, we have it at some universities. So it's starting to turn that corner to show that, hey, this is a viable way of installing maps in places without infrastructure, a lot cheaper and more accurate and, and reliable. So LIDAR, is it using sonic waves or light waves? Laser. Laser. Yeah. So it's using light and it bounces the laser and then measures how fast it takes to come back and gives you your distance that way? Yeah. Every single laser beam is geocoded, meaning it has an identification in space as to where it is. So if you get a 360 degree image of a room, it, it tells you everything, where the doors are, the desks, the furniture, all sorts of things. And so you have to throw out certain things like if there's people in there. You don't want them to be part of the image because they won't be there next time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's the laser. And then there's a camera that also uh, does another component of the uh, imaging that works together with the laser. Now, you don't have to have LiDAR on your phone. You just need a phone with a camera. So this Good Maps Explore app works on both iOS and Android. Man, that's so exciting. Like you're, if you can crack that one, my friend, and then, and then introduce it to outdoor as well, right? It's like you said, getting to that last 10, 20 meters to the door, to the door. It's not one, it's one thing to get on the right block, but find the door. Like anything in the accessible toolbox, you often need second thing. There's not one thing that does everything. Hit a button to call Ira, call Be My Eyes. 
I get some visual assistance. They see it. Tell me where the sign is. Boom. It's done. Yeah. So it's a combination nice. of tools that really helps. Well, Mike, I want to thank you again. Uh, that was many years ago when I started the Blind Fishing Boat Project and you presented me with a, an Australian made sonar device that has a range of 30 feet to put on the front of my little plastic fishing boat so that I could avoid banging into things. And I still oh, use the old mini guide. The mini guide. And I still use it, man. It's still running great. So uh, thank you for that. That's that's one tough little unit. I mean, there's a lot of companies that make those things, but this one has about 10 meter range and there's no one that does that range. It's good. It's durable. It's simple. It was a really good device. I appreciate your time on this. Yeah. Thank you, Lawrence. It's just amazing, uh, Mike's experience with vision loss and uh, vision restoration, right? I mean, we hear about technologies, you know, monoculars and telescopes that they're implanting into our eyes and connecting it with cameras on glass frames and uh, all these cool tools that are supposed to get our vision back. Well, one of these companies that has installed these uh, implants and about 350 people around the world just announced that they're closing shop. So if you need some repairs done to your implant, good luck. Anyways, I'm not trying to scare you, but I think there's some lessons here beyond just the technical side. And Mike gets into a lot of that. You know, he talks about what kind of vision he got back and how useful it's been. No depth perception, no uh, ability to tell if it's, you know, a, a six inch step down or a six foot step down, or if that car's moving or if it's coming at him at a hundred miles an hour. He's even talked to me in the past about, you know, just recognizing the difference between a ball and an apple until he touches it with his hand. He, he has no idea. Looking at the face of people, he can't tell one person from another. He has no facial recognition with the sight he got back. And even telling, you know, genders. And that's, you know, that's not important so much anymore. But if you're in the dating game, it is. So there's a lot of information there about getting your sight back and, and all the challenges of, of getting sight restored when you have no tools on how to actually use it. Would you do it? Would you get your sight back if you had the chance? I know there's lots of people that would. I think it has a lot to do with how you've lived your life beforehand. Were you living as a low vision? Were you sighted and just lost your sight? Were you always blind? They're all different experiences and they all require different types of solutions. There's no one shoe fits all. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.